0: Sorry, good morning. <laughs> the reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 12, 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are gracious. You are glorious. And God, thank you that you would um, call um, me, call us into a saving relationship to be a part of your forever family. And uh, God, we, uh, um, we live in, a, uh, in, a, in an upside-down world uh, that is full of just good blessings and good gifts. But God, we don't have to look very far to see that uh, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that offers us no lasting hope, joy, or peace. And God, I thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord, where at times it's felt like a hammer but God, I thank you for the reminders over and over again that we can only find lasting hope, satisfaction, and joy in the giver of good gifts. And I thank you, God, that uh, by the power of your Spirit that we can, uh, we can enjoy um, all your good gifts. And so we're grateful. God, I pray that you would just uh, help me, a beggar in need of your grace, God, to uh, stand behind your word this morning I pray that you would have me proclaim it boldly. and I pray, God, that you would do what only you could do, that you, would, um, that you would penetrate our hearts and that you would encourage us with your word by your spirit for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, amen. Good morning. So we are, uh, we are at the finish line. Uh, when we started this sermon series in Ecclesiastes back in January, we titled it uh, Words of Delight and Truth. And we told you it would be at least 15 weeks, and we told you it would be no longer than 25 weeks. Um, today's the 21st week. So we were, we were right there in the middle. Um, the, it's been, a, it's been a, uh, just a fun book to be a part of in this uh, teaching team. And, um, and I want to just, I want to um, First, just give you just a little bit of context to remind you um, where we've been and, and uh, what's going on. The audience that is being written to is, the, uh, is God's people, um, Israel, God's chosen people. And there are two voices that are speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't know if you remember that. We didn't revisit that a lot because it hasn't been important but the first two verses of chapter 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, were actually spoken by the author. And then the last verses, from chap- chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, are spoken by the author. And all the, the scripture in between that was uh, most likely written by Solomon. Solomon. So what we get today is we get the, the author who penned this, who probably sat at, this, at the bedside of Solomon and scribed it down. We now get to, we get his commentary on everything that Solomon just said in the last 11 chapters. And somehow I've got to communicate that to you in 40 minutes, what we did in 21 weeks. This book for me has had a profound uh, impact on me. It's been a profound reminder of the brevity of life. Um, I just had a a birthday last week, and I'll describe some other events in my life as well that has caused me to think about the brevity of life. Pat's um, sermon last week really encouraged me to remember my Creator. And that it's good to actually contemplate death. The Puritans... They used the Latin word momento mori, remember death. Because they knew that that was actually the secret to not holding too tightly to this life and remembering that there is life eternal beyond this life under the sun. This book has been a constant reminder to me to delight in and be satisfied in the giver of all good gifts. It's easy to be satisfied in the gifts, but sometimes... I find out that I'm not so satisfied in the giver when those good gifts go away. The very first sermon from chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 was titled, When All You Need Isn't Enough. And I've been reminded time and time again that nothing temporary brings lasting joy, lasting satisfaction, lasting peace, lasting hope. I've been reminded also that the problem is not anything under the sun. The problem is, is that what we try to gain from everything under the sun. The problem is, not the good gifts that God has given us, but what we're, we're trying to squeeze out of them. Joy, satisfaction, hope. All of God's good gifts point our very good creator. Money, knowledge, power, people, family, health, travel, none of that can bring ultimate satisfaction, and it's not designed to. The preacher continually reminded me that that of the vanity of everything under the sun, so that I would long for and find satisfaction in the one who created it all. In chapter three, the preacher said that, um, that God gave us a longing for eternity. Why aren't we satisfied in what He's given us? Ultimate, ultimate satisfaction? It's because He's given us a longing for the giver, not just the gifts. This quote from C.S. Lewis marked me. He said this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do, and they want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings in which no marriage, no travel, and no learning will ultimately satisfy. This book has profoundly helped me worship the one true God in ways that I've not been able to worship before. And this book has given me the permission in light of all of that to enjoy this life. And sometimes we, we go, wow, you know, like, like I'm not supposed to find ultimate joy and satisfaction and peace and hope in these gifts. Well, then they're all garbage. No, that's not the way God wants us to think about it. They're good gifts from him given to us to enjoy. I've been reminded that the reason that bad things happen to good people is a result of the fall. And I've been reminded that all of the injustice and oppression that I see in the world is also a result of the fall. I've been reminded that there's nothing new under the sun. That the same, um, the same issues and trials, the same joys and pleasures that we experience today in Windsor, Colorado in 2019 might have had a different face, but it's the same things that people have experienced for eternity Some of the things that I have saw this week, I've spent time with my grandkids. I had a great night on my birthday with my wife. We had two great days with leaders in Crossway Chapel on Thursday and Friday. At the same time, I've been reminded of oppression and injustice in this world. We watched a movie the other night called Best of Enemies. That's about the period of time in 1969 when the Ku Klux Klan was alive and well. And there was great injustice amongst African Americans in this country. I was reminded that that wasn't that long ago and it still happens in some parts of the world. This week I've been reminded of people in the hospital. I've been reminded of death. I've been reminded of suicide. And I've been reminded of my own mortality. You know, it's easy to trust the Lord. It's easy actually for me to say, you know what, you need to trust. Just trust in God because he's good. He's loving. He's sovereign. This isn't our home. But then when something rattles us, actually happens in our life, it's harder to believe it sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier to sing these songs... When we're not in the middle of some type of trial. When we haven't experienced some type of injustice or oppression. And this is pretty dang minor, but it's kind of scary that um, last week I went in and and, uh, my wife, my lovely wife, gentle badgering wife, um, told me that I need to get into the dermatologist. Because it's been like a year... I think she said it's been 13 months and 14 days or something like that, and five hours. (laughs) And uh, you see, in in 2017, um, when I tore my bicep off my arm, um, I used up my deductible. And I decided it's probably about time to get a check from a dermatologist. So I went in in 2017. Because it was free. That's what we all do, right? You you can get two or three colonoscopies, or you can go to the dermatologist. (laughs) I chose a dermatologist. sorry. <laughs> and what they found was a spot on my back that was um, in situ melanoma. And, um, and so they, they, rem- they removed it and they got the margins. So I was, I was good to go. But you're supposed to go every six months after they diagnose something like melanoma. Um, but I don't like doctors. And so I Finally went in on Wednesday, and um, and he found a little something on my shoulder and looked at it and said we probably ought a biopsy that. He, he called me that night and he said it's in situ melanoma. So I went in on Friday and they took out a um, it feels like a 19 inch piece, but it's like it's a three and a half inch um, chunk of my arm, and it's caused me like to um, to think about. All these things that the preacher has wrote about in a profoundly personal kind of way. I don't think I'm going anywhere. But it's times like this, when I see that the good gifts the Lord has given me, health can be idolized. It can be taken for granted. Do I want good health? Of course I do. Do I idolize it sometimes? You bet I do. So God has given me just a great opportunity to proclaim and preach this book today um, and is asking me if I believe it and if I can live it out. Some of the questions that have come out from the preaching of this book over 21 weeks is, are questions like what is the meaning of life? Does God even care? Does God even hear me? Is God a loving God? Is life worth living? Another question is, is success wrong? What have been your takeaways? What have you taken away from this sermon series? Today we're going to see the author close this paradoxical book with six aggravating words. The preacher points out to us what is vain in this book so that we can discover what is not vain. When all you ever wanted isn't enough and you want more of whatever it is, this book will remind you that the God who created you is enough. And I want to ask you a few questions just to ponder as we go through these short verses today. If you could sum up the Christian life, how would you describe it? What should our attitude be towards God? And I just got out of two days of meetings where we where we uh, fi- uh, fine-tuned a mission statement for Crossway of Colorado, so I'm going to ask you, what is the mission statement, if you could write one, for every Christian? Not just your own unique mission statement, but what is, you, what is the mission statement for every Christian? And what is your response to this book? Verse 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And this, this uh, theme of vainness or vanity is the theme of the book. It's mentioned over 38 times, and this is the 38th time. It's important. He started the book with this exact phrase, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity, vanity. And now the author ends with it. And understanding this phrase is foundational to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a foundational truth required, actually. It's required to be able to enjoy this life under the sun. So if you are looking for joy under the sun, if you're looking to enjoy this life, it first starts with recognizing and come to terms with that this life is vanity. I think it would be good for those who are new and for those of you that have only heard it 38 times, um, what um, the Hebrew word for vanity actually is. It doesn't mean that this life is meaningless. It means, uh, it's from the Hebrew word Hevel. H-E, it's actually H-E-B-E-L, but it's pronounced Hevel. And it means a vapor, or a mist, or a wisp of smoke. If you remember how we described it early on, is if you're out on a cold Colorado winter day, it's 10 degrees, the sun is shining, the air is crisp, and you breathe, you see your breath and it's there for a moment, and it's gone. That's Hevel. He's saying that life is Hevel. It's fleeting. It's transient. It evaporates. It's unsubstantial. You can't can't grab a hold of it like this life. We can't understand fully what God is doing. It also means paradox. It means life is a paradox, and here's a couple examples of paradox. Paradox simply means this that, that the, the, uh, when, you, um, when you add one plus one together, it doesn't equal two. It's like, that's a paradox. It should always equal two. And there's a few paradoxes I want to bring to the forefront. One is in chapter six, verses one through two. It says that there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. What he's saying is that someone can work their entire life saving up for a secure retirement and die and not be able to enjoy it. That's a paradox. Ecclesiastes 8.14 There is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said this also is vanity. Bad things happen to good people. Am I the only one that has experienced that in my life time and time again? That innocent are shot. Young get cancer. Why do, good thi- why do bad things happen to good people? And the, the other side of that paradox is is that somehow that God in his providence allows the wicked to prosper and live a long life. And then Ecclesiastes 9.11 is another paradox. Again, I say, under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. The the outcome of our lives can seem to be left to time and chance. Yes, we're called to to, um, love our spouse in a certain way. We're called to um, treat people in a certain way. We're called to raise children in a certain way. But the author here, I think out of frustration, says that it doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's all left to time and chance. That's a paradox. We know as Christians that it's not time and chance. That it's left to the hands of a loving and providential God who is always working His goodwill and purpose out, even when it doesn't feel good. Havel is a judgment. The vanity of life is a judgment, and it was pronounced upon the world as a curse as a result of the fall. It's not God's fault. We live in a messed up world. And I want to say this that Hevel is a constant for all of humanity. You see, there's the there's health and wealth gospel that just says that if you do um, A, B, and C, you're going uh, to reap the benefits. And that doesn't work that way. I mean, I'm like the healthiest guy I know. Just asked Mr. Yos yesterday when I stopped in there to get a donut. But I, I work really hard at being healthy. And God in his providence has determined that he wants me to have, at least for this week, melanoma. Becoming a Christian will not heal you. It will not prosper you. It will not necessarily even improve your marriage. But it will improve your attitude. It will give you joy like you've never had before. It will give you hope that this world doesn't offer. So the call isn't to try to escape Havel or the vanity of life. We can't. It's how do we live inside of it? How do we live with it? In verses 9 through 11, the author says, Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with a great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher was wise. He was wise in how he brought together everything that he had learned. Wisdom starts with knowledge. You can't be wise without having some level of knowledge. So it starts with knowledge, but it ends with our desires and inclinations. We talked about this um, a few weeks ago when I preached in chapter 10, verse 2. The preacher said this, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart um, inclines him to the left. And there's profound significance in being inclined to the right or the left. Follow me on this just for a minute. In ancient Israel, the right hand connoted power and deliverance. The right moral goodness and favor. Hence, the place of honor was on the right side. The left side was usually symbolized as ineptness and perversity. Uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 16:11, "You make known to me the path of life; in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore." Knowledge here uh, in verses 12-9 is weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs when he wrote this there was much wisdom literature around Israel he weighed all of it and he, he tried to figure out if it was from the Lord or not he studied them carefully he arranged them in a certain order that would be helpful and wise so the reason that I say this is that how do you know if something is ultimate wisdom just because you know it and you've seen it to be true operating in the world doesn't mean it's ultimate wisdom does it come from God It always comes from leaning to the right, which is leaning into God's word. And it says, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The goal was for his readers to find delight or pleasure in the words of truth. And this is always the goal with God's word. The the goal from uh, proclaiming or preaching God's word or teaching God's word is hopefully will always bring delight and pleasure in some way to the hearers. Not what the man has to say, but what the words has to say. To speak the truth in love, to to bring life to others, not death, is our goal in proclaiming God's word. And this is for you today as well. It's not. It's not just for me. It's not just for the preacher. Uh, it's not just for the professionals. Um, it's for us today. When we bring God's word to bear upon each other, and we should. We should not do in a way to hammer somebody or to bring harm. I had somebody um, ask me this week. They were. They were in a. Um, there was a, a Christian in their life who um, wore God T-shirts. But this person was um, living like hell. And it bothered my friend who's a Christian. So this person asked me, like, how do I respond to this Christian? Because I wanted to to smack him. And I said, bring God's word to them with truth and with grace. And it's not our job to change people. It's the spirit. If, if somebody belongs to Jesus, it is um, it is uh, the spirit of God's uh, spirit of God's job to change people. But we should always bring God's word to people for their good, for their pleasure, for their delight. However, the preacher, unlike many churches in America today, wasn't interested in tickling ears. He wasn't interested in telling people what they want to hear. He was interested in leaning to the right and telling them what God's word says. He continually reminded us of how short life was or is. He continually reminded us how seeking satisfaction in good gifts rather than the giver of all good gifts is actually a recipe for depression and sadness and sin. Who wants to be told that? Who wants to tell you to be careful because your kids might become idols? Your spouse might become an idol. Your travel might become an idol. Your bank account might become an idol. Your job might become an idol. Your health might become an idol. When you take those type of warnings to heart, they become words of delight. And when we don't take them to heart, it becomes a recipe for depression, sadness, and sin. You see these words of delight or pleasure because he's he's helped us understand that we're not alone in the way that we suffer and worry. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm not the first one to get melanoma on my shoulder. You're not the first one to experience what you've experienced. It doesn't mean that it's, it's not a big deal for me and whatever you're going through is not a big deal for you. We need to grieve when others grieve, but there's nothing new under the sun. And when we speak these words of truth and delight from God's word, they can hurt. And that's okay when they hurt as long as it's God's word that's causing the harm and not the one proclaiming it. He goes on to say in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. I I listened to my first sermon and I actually defined goads wrong. So be noble Bereans. Whatever you hear up here um, isn't always gonna be right, actually. How's that make you feel? As we look at verse 11... We see that the words of the wise, Solomon, are given by one shepherd. See the end of verse 11? The words of the wise, semicolon, they're given by one shepherd. And this language is probably borrowed from Ezekiel. And this is a reference to one shepherd that serves as an anticipation of the coming Davidic shepherd king who the New Testament calls Jesus. Jesus called himself one shepherd, John 10, 16, as well as the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. So the book of Ecclesiastes is God's words written by one good shepherd. You see, all of God's word is penned by fallible human beings, but it's inspired by God, by one shepherd. This is God's word. In the book of Ecclesiastes, being God's word written by one shepherd, um, describes the words here in verse 11 um, in two different ways. They're like goads. God's word is like a goad. And God's word is also like nails firmly fixed. A goad is something that a shepherd carries around to poke the sheep. It actually hurts the sheep. Sometimes it's used to discipline the sheep. But the primary purpose is to direct the sheep. It's, it's, it's to delight the sheep, to, to poke them away from danger, to poke them towards uh, green grass and, and uh, running water. But a goad hurts. The truth can be painful and it can be hard. The preacher's words push us not to expect lasting satisfaction in money or pleasure, but only in the goodness of God. That's a goad that hurts. They spur us on to patience and contentment and humility and joy. And when we forget about God, the preacher prods us to remember our creator like he did last week. And the moment we begin to think that we will live forever, he pokes us in the ribs and reminds us with melanoma that we're not mortal, excuse me, that we're not immortal. That was a Freudian slip. And he goes on to say the words of the one shepherd are like nails, firmly fixed, and and they're collected sayings. We can think of tent pegs. We can think of tent pegs that are representing firmly fixed nails. Or what John MacArthur says, he says that it it points out um, how they would actually uh, tether the animal and stake the animal in the ground so that he couldn't wander away to dangerous territory. Here's the point, though. Here's what I believe the point is about nails firmly fixed. The shepherd's words are like nails firmly fixed. Is that God's word anchors us into the truth of who he is, who we are, what he's promised, and who it is that brings ultimate satisfaction. His word uh, directs us. It hurts at times. And his word secures us. Now the author warns us in verse 12 not to look for ultimate wisdom beyond these. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. These beyond... uh, beware of anything beyond these. What are these? These are the wide, wise words written by one shepherd. Beware of anything beyond these. The author is, taking, is saying, take these words to heart. They are inspired by the good shepherd himself. I think it's in um, Acts chapter 6 where, um, where Paul says that the Bereans, the noble Bereans examined the word of God to see if everything that Paul said was true. And we're to do the same thing. Beware of human words. Beware of anything that's written in any book, any podcast. I mean, I'm not saying like have a a, a, be overtly suspicious, but size every book you read with God's word. Measure it up, because there's a lot of things that are written out there that contradict God's word that are more appealing to us in our flesh than God's word, because God's word hurts at times. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. When all is said and done, when in doubt, at the end of the day, fear God and keep his commandments. If the starting place was to understand that all of life is vain, then the ending place or the traveling place is to fear God and keep His commandments. This is how we live inside of this vain world. When all have spoken, when books have been written, when all has been heard, what shall we do? Fear God, keep His commandments. And if you're like me, I just for a second, I went, after 21 weeks of Ecclesiastes, six words, like he summarized it in six words, fear God and keep his commandments. This is a command only for those who know God. This isn't a command for the world. Yes, there's, there's safety if the world would, would operate inside of this, but this, these commands that he's talking about, fear God and keep his commands, are for believers. Exodus 21 through 3 tells us this. Right before God gave the, uh, the uh, people of Israel uh, the Ten Commandments. This is what he said, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then he gives the commandments, now go do this. You're my children, now here's how you live. Fear God. Is there anybody in here besides me that struggles with that? I struggle with that. It's probably because of my upbringing. I grew up in a very legalistic environment where I had an unhealthy fear of God. And I think over the years as a Christian i 've had an unhealthy fear of God, I meaning i didn 't fear him enough. But we struggle with the Hebrew word for fear because there 's not an English equivalent. Holy fear is not terror, it's not dread, it's not harm, but it's a proper and worshipful regard for all that God is in his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his mercy, and his love. And for those who know God, for those who are professing to be Christians, the command is not to be afraid of God but to be in reverent awe of him. Listen to what Moses tells his people in Exodus 20, verse 20. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Do not be afraid of God, but he's come so that you would fear God. You see, here Moses draws a contrast between being afraid of God and fearing God. And note that fearing God keeps us from sinning. Simply being afraid of God will lead us to distrust and disobedience. But fearing God in the biblical sense will keep us from sinning. I've used this quote several times, but in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of the children asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan the lion. And the child said to Mrs. Beaver, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then is he safe? asked Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Sinclair Ferguson has made a helpful distinction between servile fear and filial fear. The word servile, by the way, comes from the, word, uh, from the Latin word servus, which means slave, while the word filial comes from the Latin word "phalias," which means son. And Ferguson goes on to explain servile fear as a kind of fear which a slave would feel towards a harsh and unyielding taskmaster. Is that our God? As Christians, we're apt to fall into servile fear if we don't fully understand the grace of God and his acceptance of us through Jesus Christ. If we believe, if you believe that you're in a performance relationship with God, then he can seem to be a hard taskmaster whom you can never please. So in contrast to servile fear, filial fear is the loving fear of a child towards his father. Ferguson goes on to describe it as that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what He has done. Fearing God is a reverence and awe of God that compels us to live a life pleasing to Him, not so that we get anything, but in response to who He is and what He's accomplished through Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you this. If you are having a hard time, with, if you, if you are afraid of God or you don't have a proper fear of God, I want to encourage you to marinate in who God is. His character, His promises, and His saving work. Fear God and keep His commandments. The attitude of fear in God should result in the action of keeping His commandments. We're going to be going through 1 John um, after Labor Day, which I'm so excited about. And 1 John talks a lot about the assurance of salvation. And John actually says that if you profess Christ and have no interest in following Christ, you're not in Christ. He boldly says that. And what he's not saying is that we need to be perfect. What he's saying for every Christian, every spirit-filled Christian, there's a direction in their life. And there's new desires. New desires. So keeping his commandments is an outflow of fearing God. The fearing of God is the beginning of wisdom. We keep God's commands, not because we fear his judgment, if you know Jesus. But because we're grateful for God's grace. And we're out of town. I've got a few other verses, but I'm just out of town. Out of time? I'm out of town. I'm going to skip on down to verse 14, where the author gives us a final warning and the reason to fear God and keep his commandments. And it's going to, I'm going to contradict what I just said, actually. Listen to how I described it. The author gives us a final warning and a reason to fear God, and keep His commandments. And he says this in verse 14: For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret secret thing, whether good or evil. I, I thought I just said that God is safe. God is safe for the believer. And any judgment that is left for you and I, let me just say it another way, there is no judgment left for the the believer. That Christ was judged on the cross so that you and I will never be judged. That truth should compel us to want to live our lives in joyful submission to our Creator and Savior. This is good news for us. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is good news for the believer. It's actually a reminder and a motivator for us to fear God and to keep His commandments. But can I say, because it's not said enough, that this is very bad news for all who have not put their faith in trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? And we want to do a workaround, oftentimes, in the church. But they were such a good person. The question is, do you believe that apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, that you deserve to perish? And do you believe that by saving faith in Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross that you are eternally secure. This is a warning for those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna finish with this. It's because we're out of time. Salvation's a paradox. Life is a paradox, but salvation is a paradox. The creator of the universe who made you and I in the image of the triune God the creator of the universe that, that, that made everything, including uh, humanity, walked away, dropped the mic, and said, it is good. And because of the uh, original sin of our first ancestors, that every human being from that point is infected with, the, with this original sin. Even those who do 99.9% of things right in obedience to God. But God could have just, he could have washed his hands and walked away, but he didn't. Instead, he, had, he, he executed the plan that he had before the beginning of time. To bring one forth through the line of Abraham who would crush the serpent's head. Here's the paradox, is that, that God would do that and that Jesus would, um, would not consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but he would humble himself. And be born in a manger. And take on the form of a human. And he would live his entire life, whether that was 30 or 31 years, without one sin. That he feared God and he kept the commandments perfectly. Yet on that cross, he took all of your past, present, and future sin. He took it all upon himself. He drank the cup of wrath that you and I deserved. And as he took his last breath, he said, it is finished. You want to talk about paradox. You want to talk about an upside down salvation. You want to talk about good news that should, when we remember it in that type of way that it should compel us to want to live our lives in joyful submission to His commandments. Not to get one more ounce of love or pleasure from Him. But because of Jesus Christ he is, we are fully loved and accepted. I'm going to finish with this and then we'll pray. Actually, we're going to pray. God, I thank you for um, your holy and life-giving word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you condescended, that um, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but that you emptied yourself. You emptied yourself of 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 uh, all that you enjoyed. You didn't empty yourself of being God, but you emptied yourself of everything that you enjoyed as being God. We thank you that you had humanity in mind. And God, I pray that there's anybody here today that, is, um, that has yet to put their faith in trust in your finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself here today. And God, I pray that this good news would would cause us to, um, to lean to the right, to fear you, not be afraid of you, but to fear you, to want to know you in deeper ways and to keep your commandments. God, I pray that you would purify this church. I pray that we would be a church, God, where, um, where that we're, when we practice sin, that we would lovingly uh, bring the truth to one another. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would um, just compel us and convict us and encourage us um, by your finished work to keep your commandments. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man. Let's stand, close our service together.